Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we are talking with Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. There are lots of current events happening here in the state of Maine involving the tribes um, and the state, and we will be discussing them uh, very shortly. Uh, Chief Francis, uh, thank you for being on the show. Good morning, Donner, and thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to be on the show, and I look forward to our discussion. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Let's start off by uh, telling our listeners a little bit about your background and uh, your term as chief of the Penobscot Nation. Very good. I, um, well, I'm in my, uh, my eighth year as the elected tribal chief of uh, Penobscot Nation. Very proudly uh, proud to do so, um, I might say, um, representing some tremendous people and processes and culture and territory, as you know, that is, in my opinion, um, a life experience that everyone should have the ability to uh, be a part of, and of course everyone can't, but it's a, uh, it truly is a privilege. And before I became chief, I, um, I served on the uh, tribal council for four terms uh, there as well, I served on some committees, you know, just born and raised here on Indian Island, and um, you know, had had a father who was very much uh, engaged in tribal politics uh, growing up, and uh, he uh, has over 26 years on the tribal council, I think, and so it was very much part of my household and part of my life, and it was something that I really uh, aspired to do uh, very early on, so uh, with a lot of help from a lot of people, and um, getting to where I am today, uh, here I am. And, and it's a, uh, it's a um, daunting task at times with some of the issues we'll discuss um, on the show, I'm sure. But overall, you know, I really uh, have enjoyed my experience and uh, I really feel like um, it's a life experience that I'll never forget. So, so that's just a little bit about what I did, you know, kind of politically in tribal government, of course. You know, I've, I've worked for the tribe in various fashions and have also um, worked for other tribal governments in other states doing various things. And so so very much my whole adult life really has been focused around um, work that benefits tribes and, and uh, it provides opportunity for tribal people. So, um, so that's uh, kind of how I got here. So lots of... Uh experience in, in tribal politics and politics in general, mm-hmm. which uh, you're, you're going to need every bit of that experience, particularly yeah. with the uh, issues and events that are uh, 
facing uh, all the main tribes, and particularly the Penobscots this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd like to first begin with the, um, you know, to catch up on, because you've been, you know, a guest on the show a few times before, and we discussed the, uh, the river case uh, that uh, started, and, you know, if you could just start as to explain that case and, start, and explain where it started and where we are now, kind of bring us up to date with that. Sure. So probably in, in around 2009 or so, um, 2009, I would say is pretty accurate, we, we started to get um, some, some inclination that uh, there was some movement or conversation within, the, within state agencies uh, raising questions about tribal um, presence within the uh, Penobscot River in terms of how we were managing our, um, our uh, sustenance and subsistence rights within our territory and how we were managing that and how we were enforcing those, those rules and regulations, which are strictly, to back up a little bit, is an adoption of Title 12 of Maine law. Basically, we, we um, adopted a lot, of, a lot of the state's laws in those applicable situations after the land claims. And, and our game wardens are trained um, uh, in the same manner as every other law enforcement officer in the state of Maine. They go through the Maine Criminal Justice Academy, Maine Warden School. Um, so, so very, very capable people. Of course, we have a natural resource department, in my opinion, that uh, has few rivals out there um, in terms of water quality, wildlife management, fisheries, um, a sustained yield approach to foresting, uh, an, an overall sustainability philosophy uh, within their practices. So we, as you know, um, have been on this river for a few minutes. We've been around for thousands of years here. Uh, archaeology tells us uh, in multiple projects, uh, as recent as last summer, that um, our people have been here um, for at least that amount of time. Uh, we find artifacts eight to 10,000 years old with just about every project we do. And, you know, those are direct links to our ancestors here at this place. So the river, um, extremely important to the tribe. And, and so um, things were just kind of moving. And I can't pinpoint any specific incident that really brought this up, but all of a sudden people just started getting annoyed that either they had to you know, notify the tribe that they would be killing wildlife on the river, which we thought was a very reasonable ask um, as we're trying to maintain a subsistence lifestyle and, and a sustenance right that's not ours as a government. It's our our tribal people's right, and we have a responsibility to protect that. And if we can't accurately manage it, then how do you do that? So, the so you know, around the duck hunting season, we, we require a nominal... I think it's a $15 uh, permit fee, 10 to $15 permit fee that we charge, and we've never denied one. It's, again, a management tool to understand what's going on in the river. So we started to hear things that, oh, you know, just people, some people being a little bit annoyed that they have to um, deal with that. But most of that annoyance really came from state officials within the warden service and, and other agencies. So that started to kind of move its way up the food chain. We heard from a local representative, and then, you know, some of the game wardens started talking, and so 
some of their excuses for lack of activity were that they don't have access to the river to enforce and in these reservation waters and all of those things. So it starts to go up to inland fisheries and wildlife. It makes its way up to the commissioner where um, the colonel, then the commissioner, and then next thing you know, um, an opinion's being asked forth to the main attorney general's office. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about more and more of this type of process as, as the show goes on. But basically, the uh, as negotiations were taking place with the tribe again, you know, sovereign governments should be able to sit down and mitigate their concerns. Um, we understand that there's always going to be a time and a place to talk about those areas of concern and, and figure out a product that we can all live with. And we were doing that. We had a team that was working on um, trying to solve concerns. And the only concern we could really see was that, well, we just don't like the fact that we have to acknowledge a tribal authority within that, within that territory. So the very day we had a t negotiating team in the governor's cabinet room with members of the departments, uh, high-ranking officials, um, is the same day that uh, I got a letter from the Attorney General which basically said that we don't think you have any rights in the Penobscot River. Um, your rights are on the islands only, um, which is totally contrary to our to our spelled-out fishing rights and treaty-based rights, and uh, those were reaffirmed in the Settlement Act um, to the point where it actually talks about the type of fish species of fish, by the way, that only exist within the river. So um, so we were a little taken back by that, obviously. It said, basically, we don't think you have any rights, and if you disagree with us, let us know. And it should be settled in the appropriate form, which told us that, quite frankly, one, um, it was a rhetorical question, obviously. They knew we weren't going to agree with that approach. And two, um, that said to us, we're going to court. So we worked immediately to secure a federal court venue, which um, was extremely important. These are federal issues. There are treaty laws. There are federal protections. There are, um, and we're a federally recognized tribe. So uh, Department of Interior is tasked with uh, the protection of Indian tribes, and we immediately engaged them and, um, and filed in uh, district federal district court um, for injunctive release of relief against this aggression over a very, very important issue, not just to the tribe, uh, well, specifically to the tribe because of its cultural connection to the, to the river, but it also is, um, is our identity as a people. And without this river, the Penobscots are not the Penobscots. And, um, so it became that serious that quickly that this kind of cultural and identity termination attempt was just so hastily done on a piece of paper that um, by, you know, opinions are opinions. Everybody has them. Um, and the Attorney General's opinions are no different. I mean, people seem to give them a lot of weight just because of the office they're coming from, but it... Um, it was just wrong in this case. It was extremely wrong. And it, in my mind, um, was very criminal in, in the very reason that protection, 
protections of Indian tribes are there through the federal government is for this very reason, for encroachment on land, the taking, illegal taking of land, the um, constant redefining of reservation boundaries, and also, um, you know, as I mentioned before, the very serious matter of annihilating a cultural identity of a people. So we got that um, case kind of thrown on our desk um, in a very aggressive manner, and we had to defend ourselves. So we are currently in uh, federal court where the United States of America has intervened and is suing the state of Maine themselves uh, over what they see as violations of several aspects of federal Indian law and uh, and most importantly, um, would basically dissolve our sustenance fishing rights that we have very much a right to participate in. And our people, those yet unborn, have a right to be who they are, and that's be a Penobscot Indian. And if you take that culture away, that fishing culture, that riverine culture, um, they're not going to exist as our ancestors did. And that is... Um, that is really the seriousness of this case. So a lot of people think it's about, well, who gets to flex the most muscle, who gets to do this, who gets to do that. But when you take this in conjunction with all the other bad policy over the last, you know, few hundred years, it's uh, um, it really can have a devastational effect, as we've seen. And so um, so that's kind of where we are with the case. I think it's, uh, it's sad that we're there. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're very confident that once we get an opportunity to talk about our connection to that river, to talk about our sustenance-based rights, to talk about our ability to exclusively manage that for the benefit of Indian people, and quite frankly for all people, and we'll talk more about this during the show, but, you know, the state of Maine really has done a good job of selling a bill of goods to Maine people that... It's the Indians against you. They're t- trying to take your river. They're trying to take your public resources. You know, they perpetuate this stereotype of the tribes just wanting things all the time and taking things and wanting handouts, and nothing could be further. The evidence doesn't show that, but, of course, uh, that's never really laid out comprehensively. What, it, what the evidence does show is that we're huge contributors to this region. And what are we really talking about at the end of the day? We're talking about clean water, a vibrant fishery, a Penobscot River Valley that exists the way it existed with our ancestors, that provided so much for this region, and we've gotten to the point um, through industry practices and, and other things where the taking, taking, and taking has put the river in a critical place, and through things like the Penobscot River Restoration Project, through things like sound water quality um, thresholds. We can all coexist, but it doesn't have to be done at the expense of wrecking a cultural identity of a people, and that's that's kind of what this case is um, is really about. Well, you know, I'd like to zero in just a little bit on the fact that the United States intervened in this case. Yeah, very huge. I mean, this there are constitutional protections uh, that states have against suit from the federal government, from anyone. Uh, you'll notice in our case, um, we had to actually file our lawsuits against the individuals of those departments because of those protections the state has against being sued. Um, and it's very, very uncommon 
and you know people can look this up on the internet uh, around this case, especially what some of the scholars are saying about it. But it's, it's extremely um, rare for the United States to sue a state. And it's very very rare for for it to happen over tribal issues in the Northeast and. So I think this case will be the first one in like 30 years where the United States has, against multiple requests by tribes, by the way, over the years, including our own and other issues, but um, it's very, very rare uh, for that to happen. It's it really historic that um, the United States said, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is way over the line. You can't. And if you read their complaint, they talk about the principles of federal Indian law. They talk about the protections that the tribe has. So despite what the state of Maine may feel like um, in terms of being able to totally manage Indians in the state of Maine under state law, it's just not true. And as a matter of fact, it is not legal. And you can't, um, you can't do that. You can't just take territory from Indian tribes. You just can't go after their sustenance-based activities and their cultural practices and traditions and, you know, sacred sites. And that's what that river is. It's a sacred site to the Penobscot people. And and so um, so you just can't do that. And, and what they say, and more eloquently than I'm telling you this, but they say it's just not okay. You can't do that. And quite frankly, um, we're going to do everything we can to not allow you to do that. And so... So we're extremely pleased that they're they're in the case. Um, we think that uh, that it brings a level of seriousness to these issues, but more importantly, attention to what has been happening here that has gotten us to this point. And so, so very very significant, and it shouldn't be looked. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised that it hasn't been a much bigger story because um, it rarely happens. And. Uh, and I think it just shows the level of seriousness of what is going on here. Yeah, I think the the fact that uh, the, the media, the, you know, the papers are not did not pick up on this story, uh, just kind of shows, you know, the, the I don't know if they're trying to hide it or if they just don't care. But uh, I, I think that be, because the United States came in on our side on this case against the state. And I, I and they just didn't jump into it, you know. I, I they've had we had plenty of chances to uh, facilitate an agreement with the state, and you know I guess that didn't work out, right? Exactly, and I you know there's a whole process that the United States has to go through before they they actually file the suit, and a lot of that is consultation with the states and uh, the state that that's involved. And those um, just continuously and regularly broke down over just huge, you know, worldview gaps of how tribes in Maine should be treated and, and what they are and, and what authority uh, the state thinks they have as opposed to what the federal government is saying you don't have. And, and there's just, I think what this has shown, and, and I have, you know, we have all of this documented and I won't get into kind of the specific private words that were being used in those negotiations, but it really was, it really just highlighted the fact that um, this state will, and predominantly through its attorneys, will go through 
any hoop they have to go through to prove that they have control, one, and two, um, they're just not going to use one word or acknowledge one iota that the tribe has any independent authority from them, period. And when you have that mindset going into a negotiation, what I find with all these negotiations is that they start off, you know, this is great, it's a government-to-government relationship, we should be doing things this way, and they usually end with, well, if you just agree to do it our way, then we have an agreement. And that's not how um, tribal nations and states work together in other jurisdictions and other states. It's not how we're supposed to be. This, this is not a subordinate-type relationship to the state of Maine. You know, we're, in my role as chief, we're heads of state. We have, you know, elected legislators here. We have a form of government that's been around a long, long time. And, um, you know, so the important thing is, are those things being done in good faith? And what it tells us at the end of all of these negotiations is that it's really just an exercise, and that's been the frustrating thing, you know, figuring out, one, where that government-to-government relationship works, um, who it's with, uh, and depending on the subject matter, it's it can be all over the place. So, um, yes, there was negotiations that took place, you know, it took almost a year for the United States to finally determine they had to come in, um, so they exhausted a lot, and... Uh, to try to find solutions, and in the end, again, there was just going to be no acknowledgement of a tribal authority uh, within the state of Maine, and um, and I think, you know, personally, as I said in my opening statement, that <coughs> this has really um, set back the state of Maine. You know, as people, as as state citizens, as tribal people. We've had some real opportunities, and we've had some real opportunities in some of these issues. A tribal victory in some of these issues would have meant productivity, access to opportunity, and strong partnerships um, between the tribe and the state in terms of our citizens. And um, But yet, we have this institutional problem that continues to keep us from doing that, and and all the while, they're selling the entire state on the fact, not everybody. We have more allies than we've probably had in a very, very long time, and we're very thankful for that because they see it and they get it. They just, like, don't tell us that beating these Indians on these very sensitive issues is important uh, for our state because it's not. It, you know, what's important is finding a way to get to... Um, a productive finish line of products, whether it's employment, health care, education, all of those things that, that face our state, they certainly face our tribe. And we can find solutions to those things together and find a better way of life going forward for all main people. And that's what, um, that's what we want to try to focus on. But yet the focus is always on crippling the tribal authority so that can always maintain a level of control at the state level, but at the same time, you're keeping tribes in a condition that is third world in in some cases. And when you keep them, the tribes in that condition, whether it's intentional or otherwise, um, 
it's just not going to play out well because you're always going to have this demographic of people that are struggling for basic uh, health parity, that are struggling for basic education parity, that are struggling for employment parity. Now, when you have a bridge that's 150 yards long, and on one side the unemployment rate is 7 to 9%, and on the other, which is high, and on the other side of the bridge it's 27, 28%, it tells you that it's it's really um, these policies aren't working, and the problem is, is that um, we don't see that mindset changing, no matter what the condition is. Right, and you know, I think in the past couple of weeks, you know, we've had hearings uh, in Augusta, mm-hmm. and you've personally attended those and, and uh, presented testimony. Uh, one particular uh, issue that's been pretty uh, publicized is the uh, Elvers issue with That's the right. yeah with the license the issuance of licenses and uh, the threats to close down the fishery so uh, what's your uh, perspective on that well again it's more of the same I mean we see we see um, a good faith negotiation on behalf of the tribes predominantly the Passamaquoddy tribe taking the lead in this issue um, what we hear for rhetoric on the other side is, you know, the big bad Indians aren't complying, they're doing uh, what they want, they're going to jeopardize this fishery, and when we close it, you know, it's going to be all their fault. And so, you know, you got uh, state fishermen all wound up, and it, it, this is the bottom line. With the reductions to the fishery that, the, that Maine is proposing to implement, that gets them down to around a total allowable catch statewide of 11,000 and change on, uh, pounds on elephants. Um, what they're proposing for the tribes are 2,500 pounds out of that 11,000 pounds. Now, let's just take out the non-tribally issued licenses that seem to be the concern of the state. You still have about 300 licenses to tribal people through tribal governments. You have 450 or so state licenses. So you have almost 10,000 pounds of elvers going to 100 more license holders. And you're basically saying that, you know, all the Wabanaki tribes put together, about 10,000 enrolled citizens, gets 2,500 pounds. So now... So the tribes are kind of prepared to live with that. They were, we were saying, hey, you know, if we get a total allowable catch, it's set up this way, we can manage it a certain way, because the whole tribal philosophy is different to the approach of the fishery than the state philosophy. State philosophy is very much about now about, you know, making it so that one fisherman, based on his history, can get 100 50 pounds, another fisherman can get two pounds. Um, you know, so it's the tribe can't approach things that way because the tribe has um, individuals who have rights, and those individuals possess those uh, rights to sustain themselves in the fishery and throughout traditional resources. Um, that's their right as individuals. As a government, we have the ability to. Um, help manage that, make sure the resource is solid and all of those things. 
but we don't have a right to tell somebody um, you can go fishing for this much, but you can only go fishing for that much. And then the whole issue of taking a public resource and assigning it to individuals, I just haven't really been able to get my mind around that. So long story short, um, negotiations take take place throughout you know, the last three or four months um, kind of heavily. And you can look back through the news articles and see that, oh, a deal, a tentative deal has been reached. All the way going back to last fall when they left the governor's office. We think we got, we think we got it sorted out. <coughs> Excuse me. We think we got it sorted out. We're, we're working towards solutions, etc. Right up until the past six weeks or so where multiple news articles Tentative agreement reached. Tentative agreement reached. You know, we have an agreement reached. And tribes in the state working through an agreement. So you had all of that stuff going on, but at the end of the day, um, what's the common denominator, right? It's what's the AG going to say? So once the committee asks for an attorney general opinion, um, things start going sideways and. What they're saying now is that even this agreement, which quite frankly is a lot of compromise on the tribal side, it's just a ton of compromise on the tribal side. What that would mean for the Penobscots is about 750 pounds of elvers um, that we're asking to manage under a total tax, total allowable catch, derby-style fishery. Um, What's going to happen is is that we will, if we break that up evenly per pound, which still comes to about six pounds less than the average state fisherman would get, by the way, even with the 750 pounds, um, we, we feel like that's just a huge compromise in a valuable fishery that's going on right in our ancestral waters. So we have... Um, that whole issue. So two concerns get raised by the AG. One, equal protection, which, you know, and I don't want to sound disrespectful or cynical, but it's just laughable when you talk about equal protection clauses and the Indian uh, tribal state relation issues that face us today. So we have that. And let's not forget, I mean, we started voting in this state in the late 1960s. Now, there was a little inequity in the law up until that point. We were wards of the state until late 1970s. Just a little bit of inequity in that system. We have the, um, you know, you have the gaming issue where the tribes are told, nope, you cannot access your federal protections uh, under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act while we're sitting here collecting millions of dollars from two out-of-state commercial casinos that one existing about eight miles from our reservation. So this this equal protection stuff, I'm all for it, but it has to go totally across the board, and here's why it doesn't really matter in this case. The, the problem is, is that all over the federal system, the, the issue of fairness has come up around Indian programs, around employment disputes, around the right to determine residency, a lot of things. So what the federal courts have ruled is that, no, this is not an equal protection issue. It's not an equal protection issue because this is not a race-based privilege. It's not um, 
people aren't getting things specifically because they're Indian. Um, they don't. This is about the distinct political entities that tribes are, and it's about their right to self-govern. So if they're self-governing in a way that makes things different, then that's just the way it is, and that's the sovereign authority of tribes. So that it's about the political distinction of tribal governments. It's not about the race that we are. So the um, so this equal protection thing really, to me, um, has so many legal holes in it uh, that it, as was laid out, by the way, by uh, the Passamaquoddy attorney quite eloquently at the hearing, and we've never received a response either from the attorney general or from the committee on those legal questions that were raised. So, um, so there's a host of issues around those arguments. And then the other argument that's now being made uh, by some members of the committee is that that 750 pounds represents a 20% increase for the Penobscot Nation. Um, and the Passamaquoddy's allotment for this year would keep them at the same level they were at last year. So they're saying that it's not fair that the rest of the state take a 35% reduction when the tribes are not. And in some cases, they're getting a little bit of an increase. But let's talk about those increases. The increases are 150 pounds to the entire Penobscot Nation. So that means 750 pounds is what our fishery would be for, for elders. Now... Again, you take the total for the Malice, for example. Oh, no, they got this huge 40% increase or, or whatever it was. Well, they went from 70 pounds to about 120 pounds, I mean, for their entire tribe. So, again, I get back to my point of earlier, 2,500 pounds for the Wabanaki, close to 10,000 pounds for the state fishermen. If we want to change that, that figure... Uh, the other way around, would be happy to take that 35% cut. I just think that um, our inability to access the fishery in a comfortable way, and, and the other issue is, you know, we don't want to be in front of the legislature every year and arguing again that our fishery was just starting, um, people have gotten better at it, and this poundage is just not working. So... This was the compromise, and we thought it was very, very reasonable. But again, um, at the 11th hour, everything has fallen apart. And so um, so it's, it's really frustrating. And, and again, whenever it seems that the attorney general gets involved in this issue, um, and I have multiple examples, um, things just go south. And, and again, it, it boils down to any acknowledgement of the tribe's authority in an MOU, in an MOA itself, is a document that proves that this is a government-to-government -government negotiation, which is why it's so hard for them to sign those. And when you try to legislate these tribal issues, especially around um, things as complex and as sensitive as things that concern our cultural identity, it never works. It just never works. And it's not fair to the committees in the legislature. It is certainly not fair to the tribes because the system is just not set up to deal with things at this level. 
And, you know, is it fair to take a government-to-government conversation today with the Marine Resource Committee, and then tomorrow you're having that conversation with the Judiciary Committee, and then the next day you're having that conversation with Legal and Veterans Affairs, then the next day you're told, go talk to the governor, and then, then at the end of it all, yeah, you got to ask the AG. And so um, it's just not conducive to the high level. Um, and I think what we would find if the mechanisms were in place and utilized, like the Maine Tribal State Commission and other things, that um, the tribes would be reasonable, there would be common ground solutions. Those solutions were found in these negotiations, and now we're back to square one and probably worse off because now all the tribes are beyond irritated, in my opinion. Well, you know, you know, I was sitting there listening to these work sessions, and I was beyond irritated. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly the lack of respect that these commissioners or these committee members have for our tribal uh, chiefs and our tribal representatives. Uh, you know, the fact that when you really want to get to the bottom line is, you know, they, you know, they, they stole all of our resources, and here we are begging for crumbs. Uh, <laughs> to me, it, I just kind of like went right through the roof when I was listening to this stuff. Well, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it is demoralizing. It's um, it's one of the things where I go because you know I feel like if we're not there, it gets worse. But at the same time, I sit there. And I don't mean this personally towards anyone. It's it's just the system. You know, we're a head of state as chiefs. We have council members in the room who are elected by their people to uh, legislate their issues. They're very important people. Uh, We have representatives. We have elected officials. And everyone's sitting in that room. and, And, you know, to be given... I don't know. It's just odd. It it just feels like every time I'm there that I'm doing a little bit to diminish the role of my office. And I I just think that um, it's it's just not conducive. The system is just not conducive. You know, chiefs should be meeting with governors. Um, Legislative committees should be meeting with our committees. You know, they should be be parallel um, balance in terms of where these conversations are taking place, but but to have tribal chiefs, you know, standing in these rooms all day, and you know, and and they purposely wait till the last to talk about tribal issues and hold the chiefs there all day, and you know, I I just think that these every single one of those representatives, senators, uh, and house reps are ignorant, and they're ignorant of the history of uh, the tribal state relations. And we really need to address that uh, in the orientation of the state legislature. And I think that would uh, help uh, with, uh, you know, educating them as far as how they treat uh, the tribes. Exactly. And, and, you know, I think the state has to to really, if, if they truly want this relationship to be better, uh, they really have to invest in their infrastructure to deal with it. I mean, they have to they have to have an office of Indian Affairs. They have to have um, a specific body that's tasked with all areas of tribal state relations, and they 
to get educated on it. I mean, what these guys and girls don't really realize is that this is just another piece in a long history of being let down and being, you know, I guess we use the word, you know, being oppressed. And it's, and it's an institutional oppression that's that we have to take responsibility for when we're elected to those roles. So, you know, somebody may go to the main state legislature. We talk about this at the federal level all the time. Is you may go to the main state legislature with your constituents' issues in mind, and that's important, obviously, um, with your towns and your region and your vision for the state. I mean, that's important. But you also, when you go there, have a responsibility to um, institutionally change what is wrong. And if you don't do that, we just continue to perpetuate this this issue. Now, some of it is 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 just flat out factual, and some of it, you know, we can't get to a place of trusting anything because of the history. So. And we don't have one success story. Well, we'll point to things like the truth and reconciliation process. Very, very cool. Very, very much give the state credit for coming to the table on that issue. And um, very important. You know, we have things like that. Then we have things that are just insulting sometimes when you have this. You, you presented a bill on the rights of indigenous people. And... What you're trying to do is say these principles of this document should be how we're approaching our relationship with Indian people. Not one person in that legislature voted against that. But yet, we don't see ourselves in the same neighborhood as those principles of that document because there's never been an intention to um, to get there. There's just been no effort to get there. You have the tribal state work group. It goes on for two years. Who comes in at the end? The attorney general's office starts to raise all these concerns about how this may violate the act because you're doing this. Well, that was the whole point of the work group was to change the settlement act. But in the end, it was like, well, we can put you under state law to exempt you from here, and there, which again is the mindset. We need to manage all Maine people, including Indians, under state law, and it doesn't work. And so, um, so it's been a, a really frustrating. I, I, I've been here for eight years. I mean, it, and I got to tell you, I, I was so optimistic after I was elected. I really felt like I could take a different approach in Augusta to um, to really build relationships and work on diplomacy and do all the things that um, that would help us um, all build some trust. And for, you know, seven years later, I realized how naive I was then, first of all. And secondly, um, you know, how, how um, taxing it has become to stay on top of all of it in terms of just trying to protect what we have. I mean, we're a tribe that filed a land claims over 12 million acres of stolen land. We have... Roughly 125,000 acres of land we've reacquired on a, and $42 million of cash, which went to various things. It's in our trust fund for, for our people.
people. We have some in higher education. We have others that um, went into land acquisition to purchase this land. So 12 million acres of stolen land. The state of Maine had not had to give one dollar or one inch of land. And they, they, and I say though, that term um, because that's exactly what they were saying in 1980 and they've lived up to it. And so I think that um, when you look at what we have and then to get a letter from the Maine Attorney General saying, oh, you know what, that uh, 70 miles in the Penobscot River, you know, we know you've lived there for ten, tens of thousands of years and we know that uh, 10,000 years and we know that you have, you know, extraordinary cultural ties to it, but you don't have any rights to it today. Um, they don't even acknowledge common law riparian rights of the tribe within the river. So it's a, uh, it's really, really difficult to forge a relationship based on those types of things when you have so little left and you're trying to grow, you're trying to nation build, you're trying to build your governmental capacity, you're trying to get people opportunity, you're trying to stop, you know, further degradation of, degradation of, um, of health-based services that are at um, inequities that are shocking in 2014 in the state of Maine when you think about the rates of diabetes and infant mortality and heart disease and cancer and all of the things that we're dealing with. And, I mean, those are well-documented issues. And um, But yet, you know, you want to take that, too? I mean, it just seems like... Yeah. Um, and, and you know what, Kirk? That sort of brings me to a very quick point I want to make, and it has to do with the, uh, the CDC uh, involvement with the tribes. In Augusta, and what's going on there about that issue, um, and how it makes it makes a, a tribal member look like uh, a criminal, and uh, it's only because they're accusing her of specific things, which uh, uh, you know it, it's sort of like they, they've tried her in the papers, and uh, she, it, there's just nobody talks about her you know, her position or the, or the department's position. Uh, and it, if people are following this issue, um, they'd know that the FBI has entered into it and that the uh, Attorney General's office has withdrawn its representation of the CDC. And according to Maine law, um, they, that they, the law says they shall represent the departments of the, the state of Maine, uh, but they've withdrawn anyway. So I wonder how constitutional that is, according to Maine law. Um, and they're requiring this department to represent itself, and they can't do that unless uh, the, the legislature approves that. So I don't know what's going on with that process, uh, but the story uh, there has not totally uh, been revealed. And the CDC, the state CDC, has never actually served the tribes. And this is like when the first cup past two years, they, this is when they brought them in. And now uh, they're looking at criminal action for bringing them in, uh, in what they say is cooking the, uh, cooking the books to bring them in. So, you know, it's just really bad news all the way around. Well, it is. And, 
And this is what the you know, rank-and-file citizen doesn't really see day-to-day on both sides, here and, and out within the state, is is that it's not just one issue boxed in. When we're talking about um, gaming, it's not about slot machines or the tribes waiting for their golden goose to fall. It's not about, it's about the rights that the tribe has that are continuously being taken away. So when you look at the health disparities within tribal communities, just a disgusting state of affairs when you have a people you basically have said you know what it is what it is and and nobody will say it but it's almost like well you could always move right or you could but it's not our fault that the river has been poisoned to the point in my mind and you know we have contaminant studies we have a lot of things Um, to go on in terms of uh, science around this issue, too. When you look at the cancer rates here, when you look at um, diabetes, when you look at, you know, not just, you know, why are our children uh, overweight at over 50%? Why are child obesity rates the way they are here? It's because of the lack of ability of families to deal with this issue within their households because of resources. So when we don't put the right amount of resources into people's homes through opportunity, um, trust me, all this stuff about people, you know, you hear all the arguments out there about, well, maybe they ought to get off state welfare. If they don't, well, guess what? You know, pull those statistics and do your research because that's not happening. It's not happening here. As a matter of fact, we receive hardly any state dollars and um and i would i would just say coming back to the cdc question that this this relationship with the office of minority health at the state was one of the shining examples of a partnership truly trying to get at a condition that is plaguing maine's native communities and and other communities as well so the process was followed meticulously. I, I sat in those on those meetings. Um, Lisa, Lisa is one of the most integrous people I've ever met. She's very, very conscious of the fact that um, she doesn't want to perpetuate any stereotypes of the tribes getting something that they shouldn't. Or, But she fought for the tribes to be able to participate in that, and rightfully so. I mean, that's a condition in Maine that no Mainer should be proud of. And, um, and, you know, whether we're talking about extreme rural Maine or we're talking about the reservations or we're talking, I mean, everybody, nobody should be dying at an average age of 58 years old. And that's what we see. And you know that, Donna. I mean, I've been to probably close to 30 funerals in, in my time here, and, and probably a handful of them have been um, very elderly, a lot of young people, a lot of you know, been to some suicides where the, where the um, hopelessness had just gotten to people. And um, that's a condition that, that we're fighting all the time. And if we have our rights taken away, we have no ability to address those things. It's a holistic approach to what we're trying to do. This CDC thing is perpetuating that stereotype that the tribes cheated to get what they wanted. The evidence doesn't... I have it. I have the... I have the contracts, I have how they were, I have the funding sources, I have all of that information. And I have not seen one thing where the process was 
deviated from to give the tribes any more resources than they deserved. And you're talking about this pot of money for five tribal communities with health disparities that nobody else faces. And um, it's really, it's helpful. It, it was, I would rather not accept it and then get blamed for um, tribal people just uh, taking resources. And this is what happens in our partnerships. And it wasn't the CDC and it wasn't the Office of Minority Health that caused this. It was politics, right? You have, oh, you know, the shredded documents, so we got to get in front of all of this other stuff. And then the Indian issue comes up, and, you know, now you got all of this uh, political back and forth going on because it's a hot-button year and all of that. But, and again, the AG's involvement is, um, I, I, I just I just really believe that um, and we wrote some prominent people on this issue and said, look, you know, you got to clarify that the tribes did nothing wrong here because we didn't. And so that still hasn't been done, by the way. And, and so, so you, you know, you're right. I mean, when you, when you have all of these conditions going on, the conditions don't get looked at. It's, you know, if you're talking about gaming, you know, it's not the unemployment condition that gets looked at. It's, if you're talking about healthcare partnerships, it's not the horrific condition that exists around that. If you're talking about violence against women, oh, we're not so concerned that um, one in every three Native women gets assaulted either sexually or, or in other forms in their lifetime. The statistics tell us that's a mathematical fact that that will happen. So I have two daughters chance is pretty good if we don't get them get our hands around this condition that they will be assaulted at some point in their life one of them and um, so it's just a condition that we can that cannot be acceptable to anyone and if we're going to cure those conditions we can't it's like it's the total opposite we can't depend on other governments to do that for us so on one hand you're pointing the finger saying you know why, if you're so sovereign, why are you depending on other governments to do your thing? Let us do what we're, what our rights tell us we can do. Let us do, and I say let us loosely, I'm, I'm talking about acknowledging and respecting tribal approaches to addressing these conditions, then we can truly cure them. But you can't say, none of this stuff is available to you, now go fix it. Nobody has to approach those issues that way, especially not with the disparity around those issues. And it's unfair, and it's set up to fail every time. And then everybody can point at the tribe and say, hey, look, they couldn't get it done. Well, they couldn't get it done because it's like asking somebody to go build a house with no tools. Right. And, you know, I I got a pretty, uh, what I consider a powerful email from uh, Maria Gerard, who's a Penobscot Nation Council member, and uh, we all know what the what the definition of genocide is, and it was quoted in her email. And uh, Maine, the state of Maine, this might sound way off base, but the state of Maine, I believe, uh, falls under the definition of committing genocide. It's the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. Uh, the other thing that she says, which I, I really like the quote, 
She said, it reminds me of uh, Leo Tolstoy's quote written around the same time frame of the 1820 Maine Constitution. Uh, and the, the question is, what then must we do? And we're asking the same question now. What then must we do? Uh, the quote starts, I sit on a man's back, choking him and making him carry me and yet assure myself and others that I am sorry for him and wish to lighten his load by all means possible, except by getting off his back. End of quote. Well, it's, uh, it certainly, you know, certainly raises these, I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation and talking with these kind of words, which are very, very serious words, um, is sad because when we look back at the 1700s and we look back at the early 1800s and we look back throughout history, we have tribal leaders that have taken their own lives because they um, were so devastated how treaty processes ended up on things they never agreed to do. They were so devastated by that loss of those resources of the ability to provide for their people, that they took their own life. Then you have people in front of the legislature, tribal leaders in front of the legislature, you know, 150 years ago, saying, are you not going to be happy until we're shoved into the ocean? You have Indians trying to live in the purchases and being burned out to put taverns in for the for the state up there when they had the, uh, I think it was the Aristic War that was going on. Um, so the, whenever there's been a greater need, the tribes pay the price. And I think, you know, oftentimes I, I, I never want to come across like I'm whining because we have extremely resilient people, very strong, and we're going to be okay. But I am scared. I'm scared that this continued, what I'm, what I'm really starting to see that scares me is not just what we always kind of knew was there um, with the attitude and with the approaches and always framed in some legal argument or something else, um, but what scares me now is the openness to discuss it, the openness of legislators to see absolutely nothing wrong with passing a state law that restricts tribal fishermen, you know, to see state legislators um, look you in the face and tell you, um, yeah, you know, I don't think your uh, your gaming initiative here is going to make it. Maybe next year we can talk about that. All the while, writing their district are large commercial casinos. You know, when you look at the makeup of committees and they're made up of all of those people that have an agenda against the, the issues. So, for example, on legal and veterans affairs, you look at the makeup of that committee. I mean, they represent constituents that have casinos. And, you know, the industry is really driving that issue. The industry is driving most issues. And so we have, um, you know, the, this whole idea of um, of sovereignty is just drives people crazy, and I don't get it. So you talk about bite, you know, off your nose to spite your face. I mean, you have this thick, 
rich heritage. Maine has more tribal nations in it than any other East Coast state, right? Then you have um, uh, New York maybe as well. But Maine has, you know, five tribal communities here, four tribes. And it's just such a thick, rich part of this state's history. At the end of the day, the state is going to pick their head up and say, well, you know, one of two things is going to happen. One is, and I hope it's this way, that uh, the tribe, tribal issues and the morality of those issues and, and the right and wrong of those issues will win the day. Or they're going to succeed in their agenda. And if they do that, they're not only going to um, do something that's going to be looked back over, the, over time as a very dark day in tribal state relations in the state of Maine. Um, and I think future generations are going to be appalled by this behavior. But the, um, they're also going to realize that they've just basically ripped a huge part of the state's face off um, to do it. And, you know, Maine people and tribal people get along very well. Um, you know, our departments on the ground, people to people, they get along great. They respect each other. Everybody in Maine people really have to stand up and say, you know, this is not okay. This is my state, too. These uh, tribes here have a historical place here that has to be respected. Their governmental structures have to be respected. And their ability to manage themselves out of a hole, quite frankly, they didn't dig for themselves has to be respected. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Chief, for joining us today. Uh, we're, we're, we've run out of time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Donald Loring, and you have been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. Uh, again, I want to thank Chief Francis of the Penobscot Nation for joining us, uh, and also Amy Brown, our engineer. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. Support for WERU comes from Gamble and Hunt.